All right, we want to move on now to the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. And uh, we're in this uh, part of the Gospel of John where Jesus is giving his final words to his disciples before his crucifixion. And the theme is trusting Jesus. The disciples should keep trusting him even though he's leaving. And one of his disciples, Philip, asks to see something to help them believe. What would you ask to see from Jesus in a similar situation? Follow along as I read from John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be with us now. Uh, in the proclamation of this word. Help us to hear this word. Help us to hear the good news that we might see the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, er Earlier in this gospel of John, we are told that Jesus' disciple Philip, who speaks in this passage, comes from the town of Bethsaida in Galilee. Well, Bethsaida must have been the Missouri of Galilee. Because the motto of the state of Missouri is, show me. It's the show me state. The motto is on the license plates. Now, there are lots of ideas of where this motto originated, but one confirmed story is from the speech a Missouri congressman named Willard Vandiver gave in 1899 at a naval banquet in Philadelphia. There he said, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs, which I don't know what those are, and Democrats. And frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have got to show me. Now, he doesn't fall for rhetoric. Seeing is believing. And I mostly grew up in Missouri, but I might not have truly imbibed its culture because if you show me how to build or fix something, I still can't do it. Stephen has shown me multiple times how to replace windshield wipers. I still have to have him do it for me, which reminds me, Stephen, I need to see you after the service. (laughs) Anyway, Philip is from the Missouri of Galilee. Jesus says to them all, if you know me, you know the Father and you have seen him. And Philip's response is, show us the Father then. Show us God in heaven. And we'll see how ambitious of a request this was. But it's also understandable. Jesus has told them he's leaving, but they should still trust him like they trust God and that he is going to prepare a place for them in heaven and will come back for them and that Jesus himself is the way to God. You know Jesus, you know God. 
Okay, Philip says, then show us the Father. And I think most of us can sympathize with Philip's request. Jesus is making audacious claims. I'm the only one to the Father. Don't entrust yourself to anything or anyone else. You see me, you see the Father. And then he makes some extravagant promises. You'll do greater things than I do. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. For someone from Missouri, it sounds a little too good to be true. Show us. We have the same questions and doubts. Non-Christians wonder, if Jesus is real, why doesn't he show us? And Christians have a similar question. Why doesn't he show us more? What are we to make of Jesus' claims? How are we to understand his promises? Does he show us? Well, we're going to go through this passage just from top to bottom, and, and we'll look at it under two headings. One, when you see Jesus, you see God. And two, when you trust Jesus, you begin to see God. So first of all, when you see Jesus, you see God. That's what Jesus says here, at least he implies it at the beginning of the passage in verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, this would probably get anyone's attention. All of the disciples have been thinking, we've seen the Father? When did that happen? But Philip is the one to speak up, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, one question I always had about this passage was, why would seeing the Father be enough for Philip and the disciples? Why would that particularly be enough to trust Jesus even though he's leaving, and then to go and carry on as his disciples without him. Why? Well, because in Jewish thought, and then later Christian thought, seeing the God of heaven, clearly seeing him, was the ultimate reward and goal. You might remember Moses in the book of Exodus. He had several visual encounters with God, but after all of them, after he had secured Israel's forgiveness at the top of Mount Sinai, there he said to God, Show me your glory. He's saying, I want to see you, your essence, your being. I want to see you as you truly are. And God says, no one can see me like that and live. Instead, he tells Moses he will pass by him and pronounce his name. He'll put him in a cleft of rock, and he'll just see his back. Moses will get to hear God's essence, but not see it. Later on, on the mountaintop, the prophet Elijah got to hear God's voice in the whisper in the cave. On the Mount of Transfiguration, a few disciples saw Jesus transfigured, but they only heard the Father's voice. Right now on earth in this age, we hear God more than we see him. But the goal, the longing, is to see him. The Apostle Paul affirms this in his famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And our author here, John, says in his first letter, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The hope is to lay eyes on the God of heaven. Throughout Christian history, this has been called the beatific vision, the sight that will ultimately bless us, bring us total and full happiness. It will be laying eyes on God. And in doing so, 
It will fully transform us into the glorious creatures we were intended to be. This is how Jonathan Edwards put it, the great Puritan preacher of the first Great Awakening. The pleasure of seeing God in heaven is so great and strong that it takes full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. It is impossible that they that see God face to face, that behold his glory and love so immediately as they do in heaven, should have any such thing as grief or pain in their hearts. The pleasure will be so great as to fully and perfectly employ every faculty. The sight of God's glory and love will be so wonderful, so engaging to the mind, and shall keep all powers of it in such strong attention that the soul will be wholly possessed and taken up. We know how seeing the object of our desires can enrapture us. In the movies, what do people first do when they get a boatload of money? They just look, right? Look at it all. Parents will just stare at their babies sleeping. People will just look and keep looking at their bank or retirement accounts once they're finally flush, their grades or their test scores that they worked so hard for, their dream home they can finally be able to acquire. Our desires are tied up with the longing to see, to lay eyes on. And the way Christian theologians have talked about seeing God in heaven, it will be a sight that is completely engrossing, employing every faculty, as Edwards says. Since God is infinite, his beauty and wonder is infinite. Looking upon him will not grow tiring or boring. So it's kind of absurd for Philip to say, it will be enough to see the Father. Of course it would be enough. It's everything. He's asking for more than Moses or anyone else ever received. And to that primary desire, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Astonishing. He goes on, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What an outlandish thing to say. Jesus is not talking about himself like a character in myths or religions like Hinduism, where an individual might be a god or has some divine attributes representing the unknowable God. Jesus is saying he is God himself. The only way to see God as he really is, is to see Jesus. You see Jesus, you see God. This is nothing like any other religion or myth. As the Apostle Paul says, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. When you ask to see God, you are asking to see Jesus. When you want to know what God is like, you are invited to contemplate Jesus. We learn everything we need to know about God through Jesus. Particularly, we learn about his self-giving love. We learn God's fundamental nature is to give and not get. And from him, social gravity flows down to us. From Jesus, we learn that we are wanted and invited into the heart and joy of God. All the ways people have truly experienced and seen glimpses of God have all ultimately been mediated through Jesus, God the Son. And this experience of God is what led these men to gather around Jesus and become his disciples. But upon looking at them, at him, they did not enter into this ecstatic eternal joy. Why not? 
Well, because Jesus was still in his state of humiliation. He had not yet been resurrected or ascended to heaven. And his disciples still had sin. It won't be until we are completely washed of sin after death and we see Jesus glorified in heaven that we will experience this incomparable joy. But there are ways of seeing and experiencing God in the meantime, even while Jesus is absent on earth. In fact, because Jesus is absent on earth, now, when you trust Jesus, you begin to see God. The second point, when you trust Jesus, you begin to see God. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Well, what does Jesus mean, do the works that he does, and even greater works than those? Because only Jesus can die for others' sins. Only Jesus incarnates God. Only Jesus can defeat Satan. Only Jesus can save. You and I are not Jesus. So there's a whole set of things we absolutely cannot do. Now, in this passage, Jesus alludes to signs and various miracles that he did during his ministry. And the apostles in the first century did perform similar signs. Both Peter and Paul raised people from the dead. Paul drove a demon out of a slave girl. He was bitten by a venomous snake, and he wasn't hurt. And we have multiple summary statements that the apostles did various signs and wonders. However, none of those signs and wonders were necessarily greater than what Jesus did. And also, these kinds of regular signs and wonders stopped at the apostolic circle. There is nothing in all the New Testament books and letters to suggest that ordinary Christians were going around performing miracles. God can do anything. Miracles can still happen, and God can use people however he wants. But the time for regular public signs and miracles seems to be limited to Jesus and the apostles. So what does Jesus mean by greater works than these? Well, most scholars believe he is talking about fruitfulness. When Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth, the people there tried to kill him. But when Peter preached at Pentecost, 3,000 were converted on the spot and baptized. When Jesus was taken into custody, he was executed in less than 24 hours. But when the apostles were taken into custody, the jail cells couldn't hold them, and the jailers became believers. When Jesus died, there were at most 70 people willing to follow him, and even those leaders abandoned him in his hour of need. Within 70 years, there were thousands of his followers across the Mediterranean. And in the following centuries, thousands would willingly die for the sake of his testimony. Thousands more would discard their ancient traditions and habits to follow him. They would resist the greatest power on earth and live in a radical new way, such that in less than 400 years, the whole known world to them would become Christian. And now, 2,000 years later, it is the largest global religion, and its values dominate and undergird global culture. Even postmodern secular culture is rooted in Christianity. Are you kidding me? This little nobody Jewish rabbi who makes it into maybe one history book of his day. For this to have happened, his followers would have had to do greater things than Jesus. And it's because Jesus ascended and took his place at the Father's right hand. Now he is sovereign. Jesus did all this through his people. 
Now he can do so much more than when he was on earth as a mortal man. Years ago, uh, I was doing a bedtime routine with my daughters uh, when they were about three. And I would pray with them. And, uh, and, and one time, I remember Rennie asking me, why can't we see Jesus? Now, you know, having been trained, I, I could probably have launched into a long explanation about it, but that won't work for a three-year-old. Uh, and, and though all pastors should probably be able to explain everything to a three-year-old, I had never thought how to answer this question for, for a three-year-old. And for a brief moment, I was concerned I wouldn't be able to answer that question well. But I believe God showed up and gave me a flicker of light. And I was able to say almost right away to her, we can't see Jesus now so that Jesus can be with everyone everywhere all the time. If we could see Jesus right now, that would mean he would just be with us and not everyone. Now, Stephen will share more about that in the coming weeks, how the Holy Spirit now is Jesus' presence on earth and that he's with all of his people, not just a few. And that's the point Jesus is making, that by going back to the Father, he is now utterly powerful and can do greater things through his people. By giving away his very self on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus defeated death and darkness. He won the kingdom and then began reigning from heaven as king. And the world's been turned upside down. So whoever recognizes Jesus as the crucified king entrusts themselves to him as the vision and word of the Father, that person, Jesus, will work through powerfully. And what's so cool about that is that when God works through you, your words, your actions, your presence, your prayers, you experience him. You feel and you see him in, the, in you and in the world around you. You see him more clearly with eyes of faith. And that brings incredible joy and affirmation and satisfaction and confidence. I came here in 1999 to teach history at a Christian high school. Now, I love history. I majored in it in college. I loved, loved teaching it. But I'm a pastor because I found a greater love. I saw God use me in teenagers' lives. I saw them respond to my teaching of the gospel. And in that, I saw God. So that's what I wanted to do more of. That's what I wanted to do full-time. And I have found nothing more satisfying. It never gets old to see God show up. And the way Jesus often shows up and works through his people is through their prayers. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When you see your prayers answered with a decisive yes from Jesus, you see God. You experience God. But immediately we start raising objections and questions here, right? Whatever we ask, in anything in Jesus' name, what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Well, we have two extremes here we need to be careful about. Taking these words too literally or not taking them literally enough. Some take this promise too literally so that any prayer not answered wasn't prayed correctly, wasn't prayed in Jesus' name and, and in faith. 
Christians who believe enough ought to have all their prayers answered, one might conclude. Now, we know this isn't true because we have accounts from the Bible of Christians or the church not having their prayers answered, who had plenty of faith. Paul talks about this, his thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan that he asked Jesus three times to take away, and Jesus said, no. And was anyone in the early church praying for Stephen right before he was stoned to death? Or James, the brother of John, right before he was executed? We should assume they were praying for them, but they were martyred anyway. And of course, we have the example of Jesus praying in the garden on Thursday night that his cup of suffering would pass. And the father said, no. Didn't Jesus have enough faith? So we have to assume Jesus here is speaking somewhat hyperbolically, like when he says, you must hate your father and mother to be his disciple. But we can also take these words not literally enough. We can throw up our hands and say, well, God has more important things to do. He isn't interested in my prayers, or God will do whatever he wants anyway. We always pray your will be done, so what's the point of praying? Or I doubt God will do anything special through my prayers, so I'll ask for easy, innocuous, inoffensive things, things you couldn't argue with, to protect my feelings and God's reputation. I don't want to set God up to let me down. Most of us here, I think, would fall into that second camp. Don't ask for much. Don't expect much. But if we take anything from Jesus' words here, it should be, not hold back. Do not hold back from asking. Go big. Err on the side of asking for too much. Jesus is the linchpin of history. All things are through and for and to and by him. He is the king of kings. So ask. What are you not asking about? What are you afraid to ask for? Here in verse 13, we see two characteristics of these answered prayers. First, they are asked in Jesus' name. And that that doesn't mean a, a magical incantation. If you drop the right name, you release the genie from the bottle. This means praying in faith and union with Jesus, abiding in him, trusting him, recognizing him as the true Lord of all, the Alpha and Omega. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in Jesus We're going to talk about that in the next few chapters, right? This means faith and relationship. Second, the prayer is answered so that the Father is glorified in the Son. So prayers grounded in mission and aimed at fruitfulness are particularly intended here. Jesus said his people would do greater things than him, and he meant fruitfulness. So ask for it. You will see God through it. Now, this doesn't mean to only pray about ministry or evangelism, right? We are told to cast all our cares upon the Lord and to trust Him with the necessities of life, like food and shelter and clothing. We must pray about these things. But also recognize Jesus and the apostles did not live comfortable lives. Their prayers often led them to uncomfortable places of suffering that they might bear much fruit. The bulk of their prayers were not about their nuclear family's socioeconomic success. Again, we must pray for our necessities. We should pray about our fears, our hopes, and our dreams, whatever they may be. Because if we don't take them to God, we're going to take them somewhere else. 
A few weeks back, I mentioned my car accident in 2015, how I had a, a serious concussion and, and bleeding in the brain. And even after those severe symptoms abated, uh, I, I had this terrible brain fog. I just couldn't really concentrate or think sharply. I couldn't even enjoy watching Seinfeld. How crazy is that? So three weeks after the accident was my first sermon prep week. I had to preach on Stephen's martyrdom from the book of Acts. And I remember getting nowhere. My brain was just not operating like it needed to. And I was, I was frightened. Will this be forever? Will I have to get a new job? Am I going to be cognitively challenged for life? And I remember where I was in our old home, praying and crying out to God, you need to help me. I cannot write a sermon with my head like this. I pleaded for some kind of healing. And it happened. I got done praying. And there was this breakthrough. And the ability to write and create came back, seemingly instantaneously. And it ended up a decent sermon. Now, that's one of the instances where I believe I saw God. He heard my prayer and said yes to that. Now, my brain is still different. It's still slower. I think with a limp. But I'm a better preacher for it. Continue to pray about your needs and hopes. But over time, you'll probably begin to see the horizon of your, of your prayers change. Because through your prayers, God will be changing you. This is how God uses his answer, no, to our prayers. When God said no to Jesus, Jesus went to the cross and won salvation and the kingdom. When Jesus said no to Paul to take the thorn out of his flesh, he told Paul that his power is perfected in weakness and that his grace was sufficient. Paul became the apostle of grace to the Gentiles. After Stephen's martyrdom, the church spread across Palestine and beyond. They finally left the confines of Jerusalem. See, God's no's are still in accordance with his glory and plan. And as, I, as I've said before in previous sermons, God's glory is not contrary to our good and happiness, as though we can either be happy or have God glorified. No, we will be most happy and satisfied in God's glory like Jesus and Paul and even Stephen were. So even when we hear no from God to one of our prayers, or not yet, we know ultimately it will lead to our good and his glory. Whether God says yes or no or not yet, all of his responses are about making us like Jesus and enabling us to see him. When we're made like him, we are able to see him. It's all about being glorified that his people might see him which is what we were made for. God shows up in tragedy. God shows up in disappointment. God shows up in unfulfilled longings. He meets us in these places and gives us a clearer vision of himself. I can point to 10 of you right now who have incredible testimonies of how God showed up in tragedy or disappointment and how you saw him more clearly. And we're going to have an opportunity to hear a few of those stories at a Stories of Grace event coming soon. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've seen God show up in powerful ways in both the yeses and the noes to your prayers. So no matter what you are asking for, ask for that. Ask to see God more clearly, no matter the answer. 
Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Ask God for purity of heart so you might see him. You might see him through all of your concerns and distractions and suffering and temptations. Jesus loves to answer that prayer. Give me a pure heart so I can see you. Now, what we've been saying throughout the Gospel of John is that faith is confirmed by using it. Right? You have to believe in order to see. Well, how does a non-Christian then ever come to see? Well, in Exodus, maybe you remember, after Moses saw the back parts of God and heard his name, he came down Mount Sinai and his face shined, reflecting just a little of God's glory. Moses glowed. And that's what happens when you see God show up in your life. You glow a little in your countenance. Throughout the Gospel of John, we hear this invitation, come and see. Come and see. How can people who don't believe see? They visit a community of people who are glowing from seeing God work in and through their own lives. Ask to see. You will bear much fruit, and your deepest longings will be met. Let's pray. God, again, we are grateful for your word, and we ask that in the hearing of it, you would enable us to see you working in our lives, working in the world around us, uh, even in our disappointments, even in our temptations and sufferings, and also in all the ways that you say yes to our prayers. Help us to see and, and help us to reflect that joy and knowledge wherever we go, in this community, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, that others might come and see, that others might realize that Jesus is the way to you, that you and Jesus are one. Thank you, Father, for this word. Help us to believe it and transform us by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.